Welcome, everyone. And uh, we have one hour, and we'll get you out on time, but we're also going to start on time. So I am um, the former chair of the Department of Family Medicine up in Boston, uh, uh, Boston University, and uh, have been working sort of at the interface of, of primary care and psychiatry throughout my career. And joining me today is Manish, who's currently up at uh, uh, the Icon uh, School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York. Previously was down here for 10 years with uh, um, Southwestern, right? Yeah. So then uh, I actually trained at Baylor way down in Houston. So um, we both have roots here. Here are disclosures. We both have a uh, you know, number of uh, uh, sources. And today, the learning objectives are <coughs> to look at system-based barriers to optimizing care of major depression, and particularly uh, looking at it in the primary care setting. And we'll look at a lot of um, the latest data. Uh, we'll look at some uh, new treatment alternatives. And we'll also look at how to incorporate tools that really let us uh, optimize patient outcomes both at the individual patient level and at the practice level. And I'm gonna uh, do a few slides here at the introduction and then turn it over uh, to Manish and then I will be coming back at the end. So uh, sort of a sandwich presentation and uh, Manish will give you the good part, the meat in the middle. So why do we focus on depression? particularly in a primary care sort of environment. Well, the key is that depression is sort of the multiplier for most chronic diseases in terms of their impact and their cost uh, and utilization. So these are data that have accumulated over the years. There's a lot more data than summarized here. But basically what we see is a three to four-fold increase in the occurrence of almost every chronic medical disease in patients with depression. And the flip, which is uh, in patients with those chronic diseases, um, major depression is often common. And then the outcomes of uh, those illnesses or those chronic diseases are also much worse in patients with uh, comorbid depression. Just as an example, looking at depression and diabetes, what we find is that functional disability is about threefold increase in a, in a population with just major depression. It's about two and a half fold increase in individuals with just diabetes. But when we put those two conditions together in the same patient, we have over a sevenfold increase in functional disability. So that is pretty typical for the chronic conditions. What we also find is a huge cost, uh, but it's costs that we often don't see from major depression. So 210 billion is the estimate when we wrap all the costs together. We also currently have an instance of about 12 to 14% of adult men and about 22, 24% of adult women uh, will experience major depression at some point in their lifetime, and that is gradually creeping up. So it's got a huge impact on us. 
Yeah, I mentioned that the costs are often uh, fairly invisible because what the costs uh, really come from with major depression is the comorbid conditions. The costs with depression itself um, you know, are displayed there, but for every dollar of uh, cost related to depression itself, we have about a $6.60 cost in terms of the overall uh, impact, mainly through uh, comorbidities. So that's, uh, that's why we focus on that. Now, what we find is adherence in depression is really a big issue. Uh, and it's part of the depressive illness that patients often aren't uh, understanding and truly adhering to the treatments uh, that uh, uh, we know would get them better. So then that impacts the uh, comorbidities as well. We find a high rate of relapse as well, particularly in patients if they get to where they're feeling better and then they stop their uh, treatment rather than uh, continuing uh, for the prescribed uh, duration, which is typically six to nine months after remission in the first episode, two to three years in the second episode, and in severe episodes, even after the second episode, and certainly after the third uh, episode, we want them to continue on medication chronically because we know if not, they are very highly likely to have a recurrence and have that recurrence uh, uh, within months. Now, there are a lot of system barriers that uh, uh, impact our ability to provide adequate care for major depression in the primary care setting. Payment arrangements are a major one. They often provide a disincentive uh, to uh, providing the service base that we know is required to uh, adequately treat depression. Um, the approaches that we found to be effective, which is really using a team collaborative care approach, we'll go into that quite a bit later, uh, the reimbursement for those is just now bubbling out of uh, uh, plans in terms of ways to get that adequately reimbursed. Flip of that is we know that uh, properly measured pay for performance initiatives can uh, uh, improve um, uh, care and, and high quality care. A major one, and it uh, depends on the uh, part of the country, but uh, in a large uh, part of the United States, uh, the um, behavioral carve out uh, really impedes the ability for us to deal adequately with the patient who has comorbidities. 60% of patients that have depression have a chronic comorbidity. So to adequately deal with that patient, as you'll see us uh, describing later in, in the uh, presentation, we really uh, have to be able to integrate the care. And a carve-out structure uh, has major problems for that. Um, and then proper care requires frequent contact with the patients. Typically, we'll want to have contact with the patients every two to three weeks uh, through the first several months until we get the patient stabilized on um, optimal response. And then we taper down uh, the frequency. Uh, and if we don't have a base that allows us to provide that financially uh, and uh, team-wise, uh, it really impacts the ability to uh, um <coughs> achieve the outcome we want. 
Now, measurement is critical. And um, we'll get into that a little bit uh, later, uh, but it really brings us to HEDIS, which provides us with a quality summary of measures that we really need every patient to be using in a primary care setting <coughs> if we're going to achieve uh, uh, optimal outcomes. So HEDIS, we really are looking at screening of the population of all the patients uh, that are uh, in that provider's practice, not just the visiting patients, but the entire uh, patient base because a lot of patients with major depression and other comorbidities, one of the consequences of that is they don't come in until they have a crisis. And then they end up in a, a very expensive setting usually, either medical or psychiatric. So uh, that is critical. And having a HEDIS measure that really looks at the population base is critical. We also know that you've got to use, and the PHQ-9, it's not the only one, but it's the one that uh, is most common. You've got to use ongoing measurement to assess improvement and to guide treatment uh, um, improvement or treatment change. So PHQ-9, if the score doesn't change by at least five, um, we need to do something different. And uh, slowly, you know, fortunately we now have uh, uh, HEDIS measures where they can be built into electronic clinical data systems. I've used Centricity, I've used uh, uh, a number of different ones, and they now have these pretty well embedded, which is very helpful. So just to, to refresh, screening of the population, following up on uh, a positive screen, and that's across the adolescent and the adult uh, uh, populations. That's uh, in keeping with the United States Preventive Services Task Force recommendation. And then following the patient. So it's not enough just to diagnose them and to uh, initiate treatment. As I said, you have to do a lot of follow-up to get these patients um, uh, truly improved. And so we need to see that follow-up measures over at least four to eight months, which is uh, what it takes to stabilize a patient with major depression. We wanna see remission, which we can get to in probably two thirds of patients adequately treated with a combination of medication and psychotherapies. There have been more advanced treatments for those that are uh, still not at remission and uh, response. So here's just a summary we see these measures slowly creeping up year over year, which is good. Unfortunately, it's not as rapid an improvement as we see in a lot of other HEDIS measures. So this is continuation phase. This is critical at keeping patients from having uh, relapses. So with that, I'm gonna turn it over to Manish, and he's gonna take us through a lot of the clinical uh, data that we have. Can everyone hear me? Yeah. Okay. So uh, I was talking about how a lot of work related to management of depression effectively was done here in Dallas, started here in Dallas. And I don't know if you know the, what is now AHRQ. It was initially led uh, result of a legislation in 1989. And when the agency was formed, it was had a different name than AHCRP or something. And uh, when they came out, they wanted to tackle seven conditions in primary care. 
One of those seven was depression. And they went to uh, John Rush, who was the chair of that committee. So in 1991, they came out with the very first recommendation to start screening and management of depression in primary care. So uh, that with that background, it's still impressive that less than 3% of adults in ambulatory care settings actually get screened for depression. This is data that was published a few months ago. So even though USPSTF guidelines have been there for a long time, we are not doing a lot of screening. And that's reflected in treatment outcomes, which show that fewer than one in five people with depression actually get adequately treated. And the bar for adequate treatment is pretty low in these epidemiological studies. So what we are also struggling with is, and uh, I'm sure most of you know that, that over a third of US population lives in mental health scarcity area designated by the federal government. I, the number is probably much higher than that. I work right now in Manhattan, which has about a quarter of like all psychiatrists in the country. I still have difficulty finding therapists for my patients. So even having psychiatrists access to mental health providers does not translate into effective care for everyone. So, uh, so this led to people, uh, my mentors over the long time ago to formulate how do we effectively treat depression in primary care and that led to this idea of measurement-based care, which is very simple. If you're a primary care doctor managing diabetes, you will measure hemoglobin A1C for changing treatments. For depression, it distilled down to this measurement-based care practices, which emphasize monitoring of symptom severity with PHQ-9, monitoring of side effects, because if someone is having side effects, they are going to stop taking the medication if it's burdensome. Monitoring adherence, if someone is not able to take their medications, I can keep going up on the dose of medication, it's not going to do anything. Then it wasn't just these measurements, but how to implement these measurements. So insisting that people come back for follow-up visits within two to three weeks period of time, because there is this notion that medications take six to eight weeks to work, why have them come back in two weeks or three weeks? But emphasizing that coming back again early on to make sure we are addressing side effects, we are addressing adherence, when you do these kind of practices, the improvement rates are double the rate of what you would get as with treatment as usual. And this was done in a randomized study. I don't have a slide here, but it was done in China. And they found that the, if you use measurement-based care, the remission rates were twice as high. So just using these simple, very commonsensical clinical practices can help in improving care. So STAR-D, if you are familiar, was a large study that led, uh, and uh, some of the findings came out of STAR-D that about two-thirds people do get better. But this is my favorite slide from STAR-D, which has over 200 papers now. And in this slide, uh, the authors looked at whether the outcomes in STAR-D for primary care patients, which was 60% of the population, were different from those in psychiatric practices. And what they found was there was no difference at all. The early management of major depressive disorder, if using measurement-based care, is equally good in primary care as it is in psychiatric care. And it wasn't that the patients were less sick in primary care. They were equally depressed. They were just seeking treatment in primary care instead of seeking treatment in psychiatric practices. So working on this, uh, we had been doing now, and I say we, led by Dr. Trivedi here in Dallas, this work of screening people in primary care practices. 
And we really went to clinics that serve predominantly low-income Medicaid uninsured, which is about 25% of the population in Texas, and offering a universal screening for depression. So a few things were important. Uh, first thing is, not many people refused. So fewer than 6% people. So these are patients who are coming in seeking treatment for cold. They are just walking into the clinic and they're getting screened with for depression. Very few people refused. The other important thing that we noticed was, and which comes on the next slide, is that very few people were actually uh, sent out for external care or they refused treatment. So if you see that most of the patients were managed in primary care settings. But what we also found was that if patients came back for three visits in the next three months, their remission rates were close to 45%, which from a perspective of STAR-D, which was a much longer study, very meticulously done, remission rate in STAR-D were 33% with the first treatment. So what we see is that if patients come back for treatment using this measurement-based care, they get better. Unfortunately, what we found was that over half the patients never came back after getting started with treatment. And I know this is not news to you, but we found that, and so that's a challenge. So with that background, I hope everyone in this room already has bought into this idea that we need to do measurements. And uh, when we do need to do measurements, we need to be measuring these nine criterion symptom of depression, which is what you get from PHQ-9. So if you use PHQ-9, you're measuring these nine criterion symptoms. But uh, when I came on board with the group, I wanted to look at other symptom domains because it's not news that over 50% patients also have anxiety. A lot of patients have also manic or hypomanic symptoms, irritability, but then there are also impairments in functional domain. So I'll just give a one quick example of what we found. So work productivity, which is if you show up to work, do you feel 100% productive or not, or if you did not show up to work. It's quite prevalent in depression, and uh, wor what is more common is people with depression showing up to work and not feeling productive, so what we call presenteeism, which is estimated to account for 80% of the annual cost of depression. And we saw that with treatment, that went down. So fewer and fewer people said that they showed up to work and they didn't feel productive. But we also, what we also found was that there were some people who were reporting that much early on. So if the work productivity was improving by week two, they were doing much better even after 12 weeks or seven months out. So by measuring work productivity early on, we could show who was going to stay better versus if they had depression improvement, but if their work productivity hadn't improved, then they were not showing, showing that much improvement. Other things uh, we also uh, have to keep in mind that as we start someone on treatment, they may have a whole lot of different symptoms. So we did a study where we looked at these common symptoms that are often treatment emergent. So we see that often when we start someone on treatment, their anxiety gets worse, their irritability gets worse. So uh, we don't know what to make of that, right? Often that resolves with time. Fortunately, it's not very common. It's less than 10% patients, but still it happens. What we found was that if someone has worsening of irritability and that resolves, they have less likelihood of staying better on the treatment. So again, we are getting these signals that as we start treating someone, there may be other changes happening beyond PHQ-9 and how do we make sense of that? So 
we did a study, uh, and that, that again is like moving targets. I have you bought into the idea that we should be measuring THQ9, but what about the other things? So we addressed that with one simple example. I'll skip over most of the details, but what we did was we looked at individual outcomes here of remission and no meaningful benefit. We yeah. have developed an individual level calculator where you can, on each visit, you can plug in whatever their value of depression severity is, what their value of irritability is, and it gives you an individual level idea of what's their likelihood of staying b getting better or not getting better. So these two different outcomes. So from the research perspective, we are trying to drive a lot of this innovation so that when you're doing this and if you're measuring THQ9 in your electronic health records, we, sh we should be able to give you some decision support tools that gives an individual level idea of what the likelihood of improvement would be. So we will probably get, I'm covering a lot of ground, we'll share to the questions later on, so if you have any questions. So pivoting over to the treatments of depression, I'm sure you are familiar that there are a, a lot of different antidepressants. Commonly used first-step antidepressants are SSRIs and SNRIs. Well, other commonly used antidepressants are bupropion, mirtazapine, they are commonly used. We also, after uh, a first-step trial of medication has not been effective, we may go to augmentation with a second-generation antipsychotic. Uh, recently, in March of this year, FDA approved a new treatment, intranasal ketamine. I have to tell you there is a financial conflict of interest. Mount Sinai that employs me has a patent on that. So, but there are multiple different treatments available. So the takeaway message would be that even if medications are not working, therapy is not working, there could be other treatments available that may get patients better. So uh, we have a lot of different treatment options. And what I also want to emphasize is that antidepressant medications, even though the name is antidepressant, they are used for a lot of other conditions. In fact, there have been studies that show that antidepressants may be better at improving anxiety than improving depression. So there is just a list of different uh, conditions and it includes anxiety, it includes insomnia, it includes uh, seasonal affective disorder, medications like bupropion are also effective for smoking cessation. And these things could be helpful if you're trying to pick a medication and if you're trying to target multiple things with the same treatment. Some of this may be helpful there. So get, we started with screening, diagnosing, getting someone started on treatment. Then when we are starting someone on treatment, we are measuring their side effects as it gets started. We expect some side effects early on. We often see side effects of gastrointestinal symptoms, and we uh, often guide our patients through uh, basically if seeing if it's burdensome or not, if it's not burdensome, continuing at the dose or reducing the dose. And most often patients are able to get through that initial period. But some side effects may emerge later on. And this is really important to keep that in mind because it can have metabolic consequences, but it could also have an effect on whether patients actually take the medication or continue taking the medication. So, for example, weight gain is one of those side effects that may emerge later on. Uh, it is uh, amongst SSRIs. It's most common with paroxetine. Medications like bupropion and levomilnacipran, they have the least likelihood of weight gain potential than SSRIs and SNRIs. And when using second-generation antipsychotics, I'm not sure what I did. Uh, so when using second-generation antipsychotics, I'm just going to pause. 
uh, we have to be aware of side effects related to uh, weight gain, especially medications like olanzapine and quetiapine, they have much higher weight gain potential. The next slide that I had up there was talking about side effects related to sexual dysfunction. So that also is a side effect that may often emerge later on in the course of treatment. And uh, can someone help with the slides? I hope I don't have to do the slides. So, if, uh, so th they also can emerge later on. They are more common with uh, serotonergic antidepressants like SSRIs and SNRIs. They are less common with antidepressants like bupropion. So that's, again, uh, something to keep in mind to monitor for that as you are guiding your patients through treatment. So, uh, so the next thing that I had up there, you have to believe me, was that getting someone started on antidepressant, monitoring them through side effects, making sure they are not having side effects. But we often may come to situations where we have to stop antidepressants. Now, if you ask me, I would say, like, why? Why do we want to stop antidepressant, especially if it's working? But there could be cases. Someone with just a single episode, they are doing really well. They may not want to stay on antidepressant forever. In those cases, we always have to be aware of the symptoms that may come when we stop it, what we call antidepressant discontinuation symptoms. And I have had these conversations with patients after New York Times and other media ran stories about antidepressants as addictive, but we don't say that for like beta blockers. If we stop taking beta blockers, their heart rate and blood pressure would go up. So why are we saying that with antidepressants that if we suddenly stop taking some antidepressants like Paxil or uh, paroxetine or venlafaxine, desvenlafaxine, about 40 to 50% or even higher proportion of patients would experience withdrawal symptoms. And we have often it's tolerable, but for some people it may be pretty discomforting. So being aware, mindful of those discontinuation symptoms, having that conversation with patients upfront about it is something that we should be keeping in mind as we are guiding our patients through treatment. Which brings us to this important concept, and I'm sure it's not new to you, is the idea of shared decision making. Because there are no very obvious clear-cut options that we are, have when we are treating depression. There are 30 medications available. How do we guide patients through this a lot of uncertainty? And that's where we have to use principles of shared decision making. And uh, there, uh, there, I had a slide about like a decision aid tool. You can probably Google it uh, for uh, shared decision making Mayo Clinic. And they have a tool that can be used with patients where it guides about the cost of different medication, the side effect profile of different medication, especially sexual side effect profile, weight gain profile, the risk of discontinuation profile. But it's that idea that trying to get to a common decision and empowering patients to make that decision that's, those are the questions that do we really need to use the medication or are resources available to use non-pharmacological treatment? Can we use psychotherapy? Can we use exercise as the first treatment? Then which medication to choose? Because again, that is not uh, known. Like if I see someone for the first time, they are seeking treatment for depression. I don't know which treatment to prescribe, which one is better than another. I was just teaching a first year class and one of the questions at the end of the class was, uh, one of the residents asked me, what is your favorite antidepressant? <laughs> so, which is, I should not have a favorite antidepressant, but it ends up being that we go to the same medications that we get comfortable with, that we keep going to the same medication. So, we need to do more research, but also work with patients about that. Then, uh, so these uh, shared decision-making concepts are really important. 
But these things also have implications for clinical research. And I have a slide up there, you have to trust me. Uh, FDA is now issuing guidance on how, what do we consider outcomes for depression settings. So when antidepressant medic trials are conducted by pharmaceutical company, currently FDA considers only three scales as what they would consider for outcomes and only two in adults. So it's either Hamilton or a rating scale for depression or Madras or Montgomery as both. So PHD-9 is not considered an outcome by FDA. So you can see that these are like, we need to get to not just more depression outcomes, but all other functional outcomes, quality of life. I know this involved with, that's one of my disclosures, a study where uh, it was recently reported at ECMP, so it's public knowledge now, when Janssen was studying escheramine for suicidality. But their primary outcome was depression severity. They were enrolling patients with suicidality on inpatient unit, but their primary outcome of phase three study was Madras, change in Madras because FDA would not accept changes in suicidality as one of the three. So, uh, so we really need to be also thinking about when discussing these things that often what gets measured when you see a prescribing label, that data may not very well apply to uh, patients we are seeing. In, and so we need to guide that also as we are, uh, as consumers of research, as providers of treatment, we need to guide that. So uh, finally, I was going to come back to uh, one of the symptoms that we uh, I skipped over along these different treatment do uh, symptom domains was the issue of cognitive impairment. So that is really important and is gain gaining attention. Uh, so cognitive function as an outcome is gaining attention in uh, a lot of different psychiatric conditions, but also in depression. And the real reason for that is a little bit of uh, discrepancy between what patients perceive themselves and what we see on objective tests. So here is an example of CPFQ, uh, which is a self-rating uh, scale developed uh, at uh, Massachusetts General Hospital by Fawar and colleagues, again. And then there is a very simple test called digit symbol subtraction test, the DSST, which is uh, shown over here, substitution test, sorry. So uh, which is shown over here, and uh, so this test has been often used. Now what has been shown is that there is not, there is often an overlap, non-overlap between these two things. Over half the people who would show up impaired on DSST would not think that they have any cognitive impairment. About half of patients with depression who feel they're cognitively impaired, they may not have any objective evidence of impairment. So again, uh, keeping those outcomes in mind. But it's also important because it may be one place where we do see differences in outcomes. So for example, uh, there could be medication specific. So this is a, a, a systematic review of different com medications that were looked at for this specific test. So this is one test, the DSST, an objective measure of cognitive function. And as you see, vortioxetine consistently is better than placebo. For other antidepressant medications, we don't see that association. Now, part of this data is limited because a lot of older antidepressant medication, they haven't undergone these studies. Doing these studies may be expensive, but it seems like at least in one cognitive objective measure, one medication may have a better benefit than other medications. So if we started implementing this test and started trying to treat that, that could change practice. So keeping that in mind would be important. I also want to finish off before taking your time 
So again, uh, re-emphasizing a lot of different things that we need to start screening for depression. We need to use measurements instead of just guiding by our overall clinical impression. We need to probably expand beyond the PXD-9 and look at other symptom measures. And we need to start treatment with what resources we have available. If that means starting medications because waiting for therapy is three months, then maybe starting medication, but using a shared decision-making approach when starting medication treatment. So I'll stop there and Great, okay. And uh, moving right along. I'm going to take us really through the practice level uh, uh, issues in terms of standing up practices so that they can effectively deliver uh, this type of care on a routine basis to their uh, depressed patients. Now, we've known what is required for a long time. If you look at the date of this, this is back 2001. This is the data uh, that led the United States Preventive Services Task Force to um, change their prior negative recommendation to one that says, yes, start screening. And the components that we know are required are case management, having a care manager in the practice, being able to involve a mental health specialist when needed, psychiatrist, uh, and then using a guideline to uh, guide treatment across the practice and among the, the team. Um, and key is that you use screening to identify the population. So these are the components, primary care uh, clinician, care, the care manager. Uh, care manager often helps with delivering uh, education and self-management support. And then finally, a psychiatrist who is accessible by the practice for consultation and to see patients as, as uh, needed. So what we find there's probably about 20, depending on the practice, 20 to 40% of uh, patients will uh, benefit from having a psychiatric involvement beyond the, uh, uh, the focus of the primary care setting. Care manager, we've already mentioned, we know what they need to do. Uh, when we look at collaborative care at this model, we now have a wealth of data that clearly demonstrate that in very large practices, in very small practices, and everything in between, it works. Uh, and it's pretty impressive. 78 uh, randomized control trials. Uh, what we see is that across them, we increase treatment adherence. Got to take the medicine, you know, got to show up for the therapy uh, if it's going to work. We get quality of life improvements. What patients uh, uh, see is moderate. The depression outcomes, including reducing suicidality, are much better. And we also now know that this approach, the collaborative care model, works in uh, uh, populations of patients that are pregnant and postpartum. IMPACT was probably the largest study. It was a federally funded study, randomized trial, 1,800 patients. What we found is that over four years, about $3,000, about $3,000 per patient uh, improved uh, uh, our cost savings. And we also see uh, employers uh, having uh, benefit as well with increased productivity and decreased absenteeism. So it's a, it's a strategy that works. We've already covered this in terms of the comparability of care, uh, primary care and psychiatry. Here's just another way of looking at the uh, collaborative care model. We have the step care approach of uh, uh, progressively adjusting uh, 
treatment um, that's usually built into a, um, a guideline. Psychiatric consultation for patients that uh, we really have difficulty with, either really being sure of the diagnosis, identifying psychiatric comorbidities, or in, uh, in adjusting treatments uh, beyond what we usually use. Here's looking at one uh, community health center. What you see here is the start of uh, uh, the adoption of collaborative care, and they had a, a you know one group that continued usual practice, the uh, primary care provider only, and the other, the team uh, approach. And you can see that over time, the effectiveness of the collaborative care model continued to emerge as the team became more effective at working together and with their patients. So what are the barriers? Why don't we do this? Well, there have been a number of studies uh, that have explored this. This is one uh, that really looked at the perspective of medical group uh, uh, leaders and um, conceptualized it within uh, the results they uh, analyzed and looked at within the context in terms of reimbursement, uh, what are the priorities, is, uh, is uh, primary care um, totally under just productivity of, uh, of um, uh, patients per hour or visits per hour or was quality uh, involved. And you can see the other ones, the individual attitudes, both patients and physicians um, have some concern with using this new model in terms of uh, uh, a different way of um, providing and receiving uh, care for major depression. But uh, these are ones that can all be dealt with. Now, the next three slides, I'm not going to go through, but they are a comprehensive list. Uh, Overbeck uh, did a very good job of looking at the uh, barriers. Uh, what he summarizes, though, is that here are the key steps to minimizing uh, potential barriers. One, having case managers that are really selected for their attributes. They need to be people persons. They need to be able to engage with patients. And they also have to have the professional qualifications. A common uh, uh, pitfall early on was lowballing the salaries of these individuals and getting people that didn't have the uh, adequate uh, skill set, the adequate uh, interpersonal skills uh, to be really effective care managers. That's critical. Physician champion in terms of moving the practice uh, forward. Uh, making sure that people understand what we're uh, about here with the collaborative care model. It takes extra time and it's time that's not reimbursed in a usual physician uh, visit model. And that has to be worked through. Communication is essential. This is a team that's learning how to work together. It's interprofessional across disciplines, a lot of different language uh, that uh, needs to be uh, uh, shared. So that's critical. And then having the care manager in the practice setting is much more effective than having the care manager at the other end of the telephone. Now I want to go through a few new uh, opportunities. What we find is you know, I think I already mentioned, most of our depression patients uh, in primary care have multiple other medical comorbidities. So how do we approach that? Uh, and then looking again at cognitive impairments because that comes into play, and then some new modalities. So this is just analyzing some older data, the impact study that we've already had. That was really focused in on managing depression. 
But what they found was when they did manage the depression uh, well, it tended to reduce uh, the risk of cardiovascular disease uh, considerably. More recently, groups have looked at integrating diabetes care and major depression care, which are they are managed uh, concurrently. And what we see in uh, practices that really use the same care manager to manage both the depression and the diabetes and manage them at the same time, uh, that we're much more likely uh, to get uh, the outcomes we seek in terms of remission and uh, hemoglobin A1Cs in terms of uh, diabetes uh, down to the uh, goal that we want, less than seven. So that's, uh, that's critical. Um, this uh, study appeared in New England Journal of Medicine back uh, December of uh, 2010, really moved this forward. And what uh, they used was 14 primary care practices, poorly controlled patients with diabetes, coronary artery disease, and uh, uh, major depression, and they used a collaborative care model. What they found was the process of care improved greatly. So there's initial uptake of treatments uh, much more likely in this approach. So antidepressants were much more likely to be started, lipid-lowering drugs, antihypertensives, and uh, insulin, all much more likely to be started. And in addition to that, the uh, frequency of adjusting them, because with all those conditions, we know what we start on is not going to be uh, what we need to get the patient on. And so we see that adjustment rates going up as uh, with a supportable care manager, you know, in our practice, for instance, care manager calls patients up, uh, does a PHP-9 over the phone. Um, on occasion, we actually do have them do home visits um, in, you know, on some uh, of our patients. Uh, but the care manager is essential in terms of that measurement and in terms of keeping the patient engaged. And what, uh, what um, uh, the group health group did was look at outcomes. And again, you see uh, marked improvement uh, over usual care in, in terms of all of these disease outcomes. So quality of life, uh, you know, particularly important, satisfaction with care, and then all of the um, uh, metrics of um, the diseases, quite improved. Pain is a comorbidity, uh, very frequent in our depressed patients. So in addition to the classic chronic uh, uh, diseases, we really need to also think about chronic pain, usually musculoskeletal, and uh, sleep problems. And we find with both that unless we adequately treat those as well, we don't get the depression uh, and the other comorbidities uh, better. So this is just looking, uh, adjusting over uh, the other um, medical illnesses to take their baseline increase in cost. What we see is increase here in costs uh, related to chronic pain. But more importantly than that, these are all uh, federally funded um, uh, randomized trials. The uh, SCAMP, RESPECT, and ARTIST studies, they all were looking at um, uh, approaches to adjusting treatment. What we find is we don't, none of the studies, uh, unfortunately, included um, specifically how to manage the comorbid pain. But when we analyze the data looking back at the studies, what we find is 
if you don't take care of the pain, it's very unlikely that you're going to see your depression patients uh, improve or their comorbidities, their medical comorbidities improve. So the severe pain you see, very small group uh, that really um, develop a, uh, you know, significant improvement. Cognitive deficits now appear to be emerging with some of the same uh, importance. And what we find is that about 20% of our uh, depressed patients have quite significant cognitive impairment as part of uh, you know, the depression um, uh, syndrome. And, uh, you know, and a significant subgroup of those with um, cognitive impairment continues even though their other symptoms um, improve with treatment. There's not a, a clear cognitive uh, deficit uh, question in the PHP-9, uh, which gives us some difficulty in terms of tracking. But here you can see the marked rate of increase in terms of problems that cause a lot of uh, difficulty for patients. When we look at the workplace, <coughs> what we find is that cognitive difficulties are one of the most frequent reasons why patients have difficulty in the work setting or actually stop uh, work. So this is a critical issue now for us. It's really just emerged in the last few years that this is something that's not just part of the depression and improves as the depression improves, but it's something we really need to look at uh, and manage in the patients in which it doesn't improve with, uh, with treatment. So that is a, is, is a critical component. What we find, uh, the bottom bullet has the key take home. Workplace costs of about 105 uh, billion. So that uh, is a quite significant uh, hit for cognitive uh, components of, uh, of dysfunction. What we know is there are a number of antidepressants. The two that have been most studied are uh, uh, duloxetine and vortioxetine. Turns out they both improve cognition. Duloxetine, it's really an, an indirect uh, impact. Vortioxetine, it's a much more direct impact. But we also know that uh, cognitive behavioral therapy and some other um, uh, talk therapy also have significant uh, impact in improving cognition. So it's not one or the other. It's uh, we actually now are, are beginning to understand the impact in the brain in terms of uh, uh, impact on the uh, networks in the brain. And they are effectively uh, improved either with a bottom-up medication approach or with a top-down uh, therapy approach. Uh, and both may be useful. Both may be required to get optimal outcome. We also have done a lot of uh, looking at uh, other agents, there's not other agents that, clear, that have a clear-cut benefit in, uh, in these patients. Critical here is that we go for uh, the low-cost medication is really the only ones that we are uh, going to uh, consider. Uh, we may lower immediate costs, but the problem with that is that we don't uh, achieve the benefit of long-term improvement. And as you remember at the very early uh, slides, the major cost of uh, major depression really relates to the comorbidities, not simply uh, 
depression itself. So let me summarize, and then we'll go through the uh, post questions. Um, palliative care makes a difference. It's cost effective, it's clinically effective, uh, and it is doable in primary care practices. You know, but it requires uh, consideration of how those practices uh, are supported, uh, who they're able to employ, uh, and the tools they use. Leadership and policy change, including around reimbursement, are going to be critical to us being able to uh, optimize the benefits of a collaborative care uh, model. And that collaborative care model can be very helpful in improving not just the depression outcomes, but also the diabetic, the cardiovascular, uh, and other comorbidities uh, that accompany those patients. 